The first verse in the book of Job reads, There was a man named Job in the land of Uz. And so we've been preaching this sermon series called The Wizard of Uz. This is the eighth and last sermon in that series. I'm in Job 38, which is very near the end. I'm going to read it for you, but I really don't have to because uh, Casey and Alyssa, Lisa, Don, Taylor, thank you for bringing that beautiful piece That was much more eloquent than what I'm going to read for you, but this is some of the greatest nature poetry in the world, so please listen to the Word of God from Job chapter 38. Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you will declare for me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped? Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we look at the last of the eight central characters in the book of Job. This is the 38th chapter of the Job. When God, when, of the book of Job, when God stops speaking here, we're almost to the end. We're at the, the end of this long, sprawling book or poem or essay or legal brief or whatever you want to call it. And for the 36 chapters that go just before Job 38, just before the end, Job and his wife and his friends have been talking to God and about God and around God, and God has not said a bloody word. God has a brief conversation with the Satan at the beginning of this story, but then for the rest of it, God is as quiet as a church mouse. And finally, here in chapter 30, God speaks up. God not only speaks up, God shows up. Before this, Job had heard God. Now Job sees God. God appears to Job in a whirlwind, a storm, a hurricane, a tornado. And from this whirlwind, God gives Job a 2,000-word crash course in the history of meteorology, oceanography, hydrology, zoology, cosmology, and astrology. By the way, this is, as I said, some of the greatest and most shimmering nature poetry that's ever been written. If you're looking for something to do devotionally, let me suggest that you take Job chapters 38 through 41 to your holiest landscape. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's Indiana Dunes or Superior's South Shore. I might take it to Grand Haven at the end of the pier at sunset when I go there for Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks. And so all through those 36 chapters, Job and his friends have been asking why do bad things happen to good people, and now finally God gets to answer. And curiously, God answers Job's question with another question. You've heard the old story, right? The student asks, Rabbi, why do rabbis always answer questions with questions? And the rabbi thinks about that for a moment and finally says, why shouldn't the rabbi answer a question with a question? So, God answers Job's pointed 
personal plea with his own question. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Don't you know that it's I that shut up the sea with doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped? Don't you know that it's I that chained the stars to their courses, Orion and Pleiades? I give the horse its strength. I feed the raven and the eagle and the lion. I cut a channel for the torrents of rain. In other words, God says, I'm the creator around here. I run things here. I made you and I can unmake you. I brought you into this world and I can take you out. And so the whirlwind is the book of Job's provisional to the answer to the question, what's God like? You ask Job, what is God like? And Job would say, like a terrifying whirlwind. That's a provisional answer. He's right. It's true. God's responsible for this, what, 93 billion light year universe? Everything where things keep exploding and appearing and disappearing and whole galaxies get sucked up into black holes? It's true, God can appear as a whirlwind. That's a provisional answer, but it's not the whole answer. Christians know that the answer to the question, what God's like, lies outside the book of Job. It is in the New Testament. You ask Job what God's like, and Job will say, like a terrifying whirlwind. But St. John will come along 500 years after Job, and John will say, God looks like a carpenter from Nazareth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, glory as of a Father's only Son. What's God look like? Job says, whirlwind. What does God look like? John says, like a carpenter from Nazareth. Now, what clarification does this new information add to our understanding of our sometimes broken lives? Well, it's this, right? Instead of overruling the, gods, uh, the, the, the world's evil, God chooses to live it. Instead of destroying it, God chooses to suffer it. God, in Jesus Christ, God decides to place God's self at the mercy of God's own creation, bad though it has gone. And so what we find here in the Gospel of John is that God works not by the love of power, but by the power of love. One man who lost his son during the Korean War asked his pastor, Padre, where was God when my son was killed? And the minister said, right where God was when his own son was killed. Our suffering in Jesus Christ becomes God's suffering. What we've known, what have we known that God in Christ has not known before us? All our broken dreams and broken bodies, all our desperate discouragements and foolish failures, the ills which befall us and the disappointments which defeat us, the betrayals which threaten to undo us, the anguish which overwhelms us, these are all taken up into the heart of God. And at the cross we find out that you can crucify the Christ, but you cannot keep him dead. At the cross humanity does its worst. And God turns it to God's best. I need to pay proper homage to one of my heroes. Let me tell you this one story and then I'll quit. 
But I have to take you back a ways. In uh, April of 1981, Kathy graduated from the University of Michigan. And in May of 1981, I graduated from Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. In June of 1981, we got married. In July of 1981, we packed all our earthly belongings into a U-Haul truck and moved to Princeton, New Jersey. In September of 1981, I matriculated at Princeton Theological Seminary. And the day before classes started, I made my way to the seminary's bookstore in the basement of one of Princeton's ancient buildings. And when I got there, no surprise, the whole place was covered up with my fellow students. That was no surprise, except when I got there, the surprise was that they were resolutely ignoring the textbooks for which they would be responsible the next day and were snapping up all of these books from this random author I'd never heard from. And so all my fellow students were picking up these books off the bookshelves and stopping in the aisles to read these books. They couldn't even wait to get home to read these books. They were creating this traffic jam in this bookstore. And so their enthusiasm was, was contagious, and so I picked up a couple of these volumes by this author I'd never heard before, and I started reading, and I was just stunned. I'd never heard anybody write something like this about David and Jesus. Never heard of him before. You probably haven't either. His name is Frederick Beekner, and he's had a greater impact on my preaching career than anybody else. I quote him more frequently than anybody else who's lived since Jesus, including John Calvin and Martin Luther King Jr. and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Fred died on August 11 of this year. He was 96 years old. Nobody's weeping. We're just celebrating the gift of his life and his sharing of his inimitable gifts with the rest of us. Frederick Beekner, Princeton University, class of 1948, Union Theological Seminary, class of 1958, ordained Presbyterian minister. I even got to meet my hero when I was 30 years old. So for a long, long time, Fred Beekner was married to Judith Merck, she of the Merck drug empire. So Judy was richer than God. Fred, her husband, wrote most of his books from their charming New England farmhouse in Rupert, Vermont, in the southwestern corner of the state, this rolling farmstead that's surrounded by thousands of acres of untouched forests, the Merck Forest Preserve. And so when I was 30 years old and just a couple years ordained, I was at my first church in Philadelphia, and one of my parishioners offers to share his house in rural Vermont, his second home spend a long weekend there. So I decided to do that with my wife, Kathy, and with my good friend, the other associate minister, my Philadelphia church, uh, she and her husband, and my colleague. I wish you could get to know my colleague from Philadelphia, my friend. She was, she is socially fearless. She will talk to anybody about anything, and she will ask anybody for anything she needs. And so we do this weekend in rural Vermont, in Paulet, Vermont, and it occurs to us that we're living down the road from the farmhouse of our hero. And my colleague says to the three of us, the other three of us, she says, I'm going to phone him up. And we all scoffed. We all said, you're not going to call up the great Frederick Beekner out of the blue. But damn it, she did it. She rings him up. He was in the white pages in Rupert, Vermont, 
in the white pages. She rings him up. He answers the phone at the other end, and she says, Mr. Beekner, you're our hero. Can we take you up for a drink tonight in Manchester or Dorset or Paulette? It's a long silence on the other end of the phone. My colleague is worried that maybe she's offended our hero. But finally he says, why don't you come to my house tonight for a glass of wine? Now I can see how unaffected you are by all of this. <laughs> I can see how unimpressed you are, but you, you know, I'm a Presbyterian minister. We live these quiet, small, simple lives. This was like, it was like Elvis invade, invited us to Graceland. To change the metaphor, to spend an hour with Frederick Beekner at his own house was like spending an hour backstage at a Taylor Swift concert. One of the greatest days of my life. Well, what does any of that have to do with Job's pressing, pointed, pertinent, poignant plea? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, here it is. Fred's been thinking as a good theologian, Fred's been thinking about this question all his life, 96 years maybe. And he finally discovers that after looking at all of the classical, age-old answers of theology to this question, Fred says, none of them amount to very much. They really don't answer the question. You know, there's the free will defense. There's the argument that goes, God wants us all to be free, to act heroically and kindly to one another, selflessly to one another. But in order for us to act heroically and selflessly, we also need to be free to wreak havoc with one another. And so that's what we do. Havoc ensues. Chaos ensues. Uvalde ensues. Highland Park ensues. Raleigh ensues. And so the free will defense doesn't really answer the question. It's not much good when you're at the edge of a fresh grave. And then Fred looks at the answer of Christian science. Christian science answers the problem of evil by saying evil doesn't exist. It's the unreal phantom of a finite mortal mind. But we know that's true. We can tell the difference between the will of God and the bad. That's not true. There's the answer of Buddhism. Buddhism's answer to evil is that if your existence is disastrous now, just wait a little while, you'll get another chance and another and another until finally you get it right and then the whole thing finally comes to a silent conclusion. None of those work, says Fred. And then he says, you know, Christianity really has no theological answer to this question. Christianity merely points to the cross and says that, practically speaking, there is no evil so dark and so obscene that God can't turn even this to God's good purpose. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.